You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. Greetings, fellow believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. Today, I want to focus on Revelation 14, 14 through 16. A complete and detailed commentary on chapter 14 is available in the commentary section at BibleFragrances.com. Now, before I actually get to the passage... I want to develop four points of introduction. First of all, an orientation to differences. Among those who hold to a pre-wrath rapture of the church, there are many minor differences in regard to all the various details in the pre-wrath scenario. These differences don't really undermine the overall premise and veracity of the pre-wrath view, And they shouldn't be the source of any kind of conflict or hard feelings. But the differences need to be presented and discussed among us. They might not lead to changes and agreements, but iron sharpens iron. And the discussion of the various differences will help us all focus in more keenly on the words and the text of Scripture. Even within the pre-trip camp, there are many differences concerning various details of Bible prophecy. In both camps, most of these details have to do with the overall prophetic program and don't really affect either rapture view. Subjects like the mark and identity of the beast, the renovation of the universe, the nature of the millennial kingdom, the identity of the 144,000 bondservants or the two witnesses, or what the trumpets and the bowls actually involve, details about the Battle of Armageddon, and the list goes on and on. Within the pre-wrath camp, there are small differences and simply opinions about various details. For example, the birth pains and seals parallel, the conversion time for the 144,000, the identity of the armies that follow Jesus in Revelation 19, the identity of holy ones, even what is the wrath at 1 Thessalonians 5.9. There are also within our ranks many theological differences in general. These differences will come up from time to time in the various episodes. Hopefully, as those various differences appear, we can all agree to disagree and continue to focus on the many topics within the scope of Bible prophecy. The second point of orientation is symbolism. It's very simple. There are multitudes of symbols in the book of Revelation, and we need to realize that they portray events or people, but the actual symbols will not be present when those people come on the scene or when the events occur. For example, Jesus is not a lamb. Satan is not a dragon. There are not literally seven seals that are going to be opened in the future. Those are all symbolic pictures of things that uh, will happen. Once again, the events themselves will happen, but the symbols will not actually occur uh, in those instances. 
third point of orientation is regarding the 144,000. For that, we need to return to chapter 6 and 7 of Revelation. Now, the last part of chapter 6 portrays the sixth seal, and it represents the second coming of Jesus. We have the signs of the day of the Lord, the cosmic signs in the sun, moon, and stars. We actually have the evidence of Christ's arrival because people see him and are afraid and try to hide. The other thing that occurs in the sixth seal is the rapture of the church, even though it also is not mentioned there. But we know that the rapture will occur at the second coming of Jesus. And so we know that it occurs there at the sixth seal. Furthermore, in chapter 7, 9 and following, we have evidence that the rapture has occurred because we have the multitude of saints in heaven standing before the throne. The next point, uh, oh yeah, in chapter 7, we have the 144,000 shown to us as a result on the earth. These are converted right after the, uh, the second coming of Jesus and the rapture of the church. They are shown to be sealed, which indicates a salvation relationship. We also have the statement that the wrath of God will not occur until all these are saved. They are described as 12,000 Jews from 12 different tribes of Israel. There's no reason to take this as symbolic for it specifically identifies them in this manner. Now to return to chapter 14. This section is, uh, oh no, I have one more point of, uh, of orientation, orientation to chronology. Chapter 14 is a summary of the Day of the Lord activity. It covers a period of time from the events of Revelation 7 to the Battle of Armageddon at Revelation 19.11. It is an independent chronological vision that was shown to John. Now, there are seven items in the chrono chronological flow of the vision. But first, the idea that this group of 144,000 men at chapter 14 is different from the 144,000 of chapter 7 is contrary to all interpretive logic. God is not playing games with us. There's absolutely no indication or even a hint that this is a different group. Any suggestion that it is is entirely speculative and fanciful. Scripture interprets scripture. And unless there is a clear indication to the contrary, identical terms should be considered as identical. Okay, now there are seven items in the chronological flow of the vision. The first item is the salvation and the devotion of the 144,000 servants. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but we have some key information about them in the first five verses of chapter 14. They are seen with the lamb standing on Mount Zion. These are symbols. 
Jesus is not a lamb. So that tells us right away that this is symbolic. They are standing on a physical earthly Mount Zion. We know this is a, uh, an earthly scene because John is actually hearing a voice from heaven. So he sees the, the scene on the earth, on Mount Zion, and then he hears the voice from heaven at verses uh, 2 and 3. Uh, incidentally, the voice or sound from heaven is the sound of harpists, and they sing a new song. This is the raptured church. They're also seeing it uh, chapter 15, verse 2, but that's something to look at later. The 144,000 have been purchased from the earth as first fruits, which indicates they're the first ones to be saved after the rapture, and they are indeed saved. Their devotion to Christ is mentioned in the language in, verses, in verse 5. No lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. By the way, in the King James Version at the end of verse 5, it says they are blameless before the throne. Uh, this is a little bit controversial, but those words are not in the best and oldest manuscripts. They shouldn't really be included there. Verse 5 should simply read, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless, period. Okay, the second item of the chronology is the evangelistic outreach to the world through the ministry of the 144,000. Now, they are called servants. There's really only one issue of service at this time, and that would be the proclaiming of the gospel. What they proclaim is mentioned at verses 6 and 7. It is the everlasting gospel that the angel has. The angel is not the one going to be proclaiming the gospel. It's the 144,000 who will be proclaiming the gospel throughout the world. Now, one of the message factors of the bond servants is to announce that the hour of his judgment has come. That is, it is now time to bring the wrath and judgment of God upon the earth dwellers. That is, those who have not trusted in Christ as Savior. Thus, the urgency to fear God, give him glory, and worship him um, is paramount in the proclaiming of the gospel. And this is consistent with our chronology, because after the rapture, 144,000 will be converted, and there will be an evangelistic ministry on the earth, so that we will have actually many converts after the rapture. The uh, impending wrath that is mentioned here corresponds with Revelation 7, 1 through 3, where we know that the wrath has come at the arrival of Jesus, as portrayed at the sixth seal, and it's about to be expressed upon the earth, but it's going to be delayed. It's not going to come until all 144,000 of the... Uh, Bond servants are saved, that is sealed, so that they will be protected from the effects of those judgments upon the earth. Now, this announcement that the hour of his judgment has come will be carried out when the trumpets begin. This is portrayed at Revelation 14, 14 through 16 and 17 through the end, where the reaping of the overripe Wheat harvest and grape harvest is described as the hour to reap has come. The third item of the chronology 
is the pronouncement of judgment on the Babylonian system of evil and its city. Revelation 14.8. This will begin with the trumpet judgments and be completed at the seventh bowl judgment of Revelation 16.17-21. through 21. Once again, this is a judgment that is long overdue. The fourth item in the chronology is the pronouncement of specific eternal judgment on the beast worshipers. That's at uh, Revelation 14, 9 through 12. This is a summary statement to indicate that anyone who takes the mark of the beast will be eternally condemned to the lake of fire. The fifth item of the chronology is the pronouncement of blessing on the saints who died during the period of time from the rapture until Armageddon. Actually, these are the saints that are mentioned at Revelation 20, verse 4. They're different from the saints who are raptured at the sixth seal. And so then we get to the sixth item of the chronology. It is the action of judging the unbelievers on the earth through the trumpets and the first five bowl judgments. This cannot portray the rapture of the church because the raptured church has already been evidenced by the harpists in heaven at verses 2 through 3. And the logical understanding of the chronology is that uh, the rapture would have occurred prior to the inception of this vision. So we get to the person on the cloud. Here is where one of the differences arise. Some think the person on the cloud is an angel, and others think it is Jesus himself. I prefer to see this person as the, uh, as the Son of Man, Jesus, for several reasons. One, every other time that an angel is mentioned in the book of the Revelation, it is clearly stated that it is, in fact, an angel. This would be an uncharacteristic exception. Now, number two, in the Old Testament, the title Son of Man is indeed used dozens of times for the prophet Ezekiel, once for Daniel, dozens of times for the progeny of man in general, and one time for the Messiah at his first advent ascension. However, in the New Testament, it is always used to refer to Jesus. And then the third reason is that this person sitting on a cloud Angels are never seen in this manner. I find it compelling that we see Jesus sitting on the cloud rather than coming on the cloud. The second coming always shows Jesus coming in a cloud or clouds, such as at Matthew 24, 30, Acts 1, 9 through 11, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, and Revelation 1, 7. Now, the idea of sitting indicates what he is doing now that he has arrived. After Jesus arrives in the clouds of the sky, he's going to remain in the clouds. The angels are going to escort the raptured church to heaven. So he's going to be sitting on a cloud. That is, he sits down to judge uh, as he pours out the trumpet and bold judgments on the earth. This, of course, agrees with the chronology that sees the 144K already saved and sealed at verses 1 through 5. Next, we have the phrase, hour to reap. The use of the word hour is simply to indicate that it is now the time. At Revelation 11:18, we are told that the time came to destroy those who destroyed the earth. 
earlier at 14.7, the urgency of the gospel message is because the hour of his judgment has come. That means that it is here and upon us. This is expressed after the salvation and sealing of the 144,000 bond servants of God. It refers to the trumpet and bowl judgments. At uh, Revelation 15, 1 and 5 through 8, uh, preparation is made for that final outpouring of God's wrath. The word for ripe here is the verb xerino. It is used several times in the Old Testament and 13 times in the New Testament in a negative sense. The only time it is used for something good is when an open and bleeding abscess was cured and dried up by Jesus at Mark 5.29. This word does not speak of a good crop that is ready to be harvested. It refers to a crop that is overripe and overdue for removal, that is, judgment. Now, for those who think that a ripe field of wheat is a good thing in this context, just compare it with the ripe grapes at verse 18, which are clearly so ripe that it is time for them to be judged. A different word is used there for ripe, but the image is still that of being ripe for judgment. Now, John Walford writes, This expression, the harvest of the earth is ripe, comes from the Greek ex erantha, meaning to become dry or withered, has a bad connotation. He gives some references, Matthew 21, 19, Mark 31 and 3, 11.20, Luke 8.6, Revelation 16.12. The picture here is of a fruit or vegetable that has become so ripe that it has begun to dry up and wither. The rotten moral condition of the world is dealt with now with a sharp sickle, unquote, from his commentary on Revelation, page 221. James Moffat wrote, the classical use of reaping to symbolize death and destruction is too common to need illustration. But this ripeness of paganism for judgment, Jeremiah 51:33, is restated dramatically in 17 through 20 uh, in this parallel Old Testament symbol from the wine press, unquote. That's from Expositor's Greek New Testament, volume 5, page 441. Now we have the plea of the angel. Put in your sickle and reap. This is not a command directed to Jesus, nor is it the granting of permission. It is simply a plea for the Lord to begin his expression of wrath on a world that is ripe for judgment. It's no different from the many pleas expressed by the psalmist for God to bring judgment on the evildoers. Now, what Walward wrote about this Quote, it is remarkable that an angel should thus address the Son of Man, but it should be regarded as an entreaty of a holy angel to Christ as the Son of Man in his position as judge of men. That's from the same commentary, same page, 221. Now, it's even probable that the plea given at Joel 3.13 is directed to God. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, Tread for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Now, of course, the use of a sickle is symbolic. When the actual event takes place in the future, Jesus will not be wielding a sickle to reap the wicked from the earth. 
This then portrays the day of the Lord judgments administered through the trumpets and bowls, leading up to the final confrontation with the unbelieving leaders and their armies in the Valley of Megiddo. That's at Armageddon. This is the seventh item in the chronology. It's the death of the unbelievers at the Battle of Armageddon. Now, the focus here is not on the previous trumpet judgments or in the previous five bowl judgments. It is specifically looking at the gathering of the world's armies into a place outside the city of Jerusalem. This, of course, is identified at Revelation 16.6 as Armageddon. Now, in conclusion, I want to repeat the main factor. This vision is an independent chronological summary of the Day of the Lord events. It begins after the rapture and concludes with Armageddon. So I'll leave the chapter here and encourage everyone to study and become fully persuaded in their own minds. Have a great day and may God richly bless all of you. Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode.